Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first episode of the Alchemix Pod. As always, I'm Tommy Paul. I got my notes, but more importantly, I got my drink. I'm drinking the uh, Grapefruit Collins from Death and Company. And this is a podcast where we talk about alchemy, chemistry, mixology combined. So I figured today we'd go over a little bit about who I am, who we are here at Alchemics and sort of what we're trying to accomplish. If you're watching on video, you can see that right behind me, I have seven highballs of different shades. And those are the family of Collins cocktails. So we're also going to go a little bit into the model and sort of how this podcast is going to look so that you know what to expect. Um, so we just finished making uh, seven Collins cocktails. And the goal here is to bring these cocktails to the podcast so that we have a little bit of a longer format that we can dive into the sort of uh, murky lore that is cocktail history, as well as, of course, the recipes and other interesting uh, bits along the way. So um, the reason why alchemics exists in the first place is to educate people about cocktails and spirits. And as I say, the sort of murky lore that comes with it in an entertaining way. And I sort of got frustrated uh, because when I first started slanging drinks, um, there wasn't really a lot of good resources online in general, and especially not on the sort of um, social ether, which is like YouTube, Instagram, things of that nature. As many of you know, spend time in the space as I do. There's a lot of charlatans and a lot of false information, and I feel that you know, finding good information about classic cocktail recipes and good technique is like sifting through piles and piles of crap just to find, th- you know, some, some good info. And I, I really, frankly, most of it is not to be trusted. Now, that's not to knock anybody or anything like that. It's just that uh, you, you just need to know what to look for. And so I figured that you know, certainly there's a gap in the market and maybe alchemics can be that source of, uh, you know, good information when it comes to the mixology space. Um, But even more importantly, I really believe that you can cut the learning curve, the sort of traditional learning curve that is um, the hierarchy within the industry that to me makes absolutely no sense. So um, what I mean by that is that there's a, uh, there's this perceived notion that maybe your success within the industry, you know, as a bartender has to do with how much time you spend within the industry or how much, you know, Um, and certainly those things do matter, but um there's a sort of false rite of passage in my estimation that is based on absolutely nothing within reality. So our thesis for a long time has been that, you know, you should know 50 to a hundred classics off the top of your head, as well as the sort of what we call base skills, the hard skills, which is your mixing, shaking, pouring and things like that. But if you know what to learn and if you know, uh, the skills that it takes to be a great bartender, I think you can absolutely cut the learning curve and jump way ahead. Um, although you're always going to have to deal with what I call office politics, which, you know, many of us who end up in this industry in the first place sort of do it with the perception that we're not going to have to deal with that kind of thing, which unfortunately is just not the case. It's the same kind of corporate level bullshit that you deal with at a, at an office job, right? Which is really to say that the hierarchy of um, the industry has nothing to do with the actual output that an individual puts out. Um, so, your skills and ability have not have nothing to do with your position or getting the good shifts. So I'm really hoping that um, 
we can be a sort of voice of reason within this industry that I've become very frustrated with. And I do love, but there is just so much uh, bullshit, as I say. And, you know, as many of you are thinking, well, you know, this is a perfectly apt time for you to start a uh, podcast, an entire business around hospitality and mixology more specifically, as the industry is crumbling. You know, I think that's sort of the elephant in the room, and that's a valid point. I, m- I might as well have just opened up this podcast with, um, you know, well, hospitality is dead, so we decided to start an entire uh, podcast and business around it. But don't worry. Uh, you know, so of course I'm joking and, and I do think that, uh, but I do think that is a relevant thing to bring up because, um, many of us within the last, the last, uh, year or so have totally reinvented ourselves and probably don't even work within the industry in the, anymore. But I do believe that there is a silver lining to all this, which I'm going to get into and that. Um, we are going to have a sort of roaring 20s kind of situation when it comes to people going out and drinking and, um, you know, working, slinging drinks again. So in essence, and obviously, you know, I, I started Alchemics long before, you know, this whole pandemic started. But in essence, that's what the representation of the Phoenix in the logo. Forgive me. I don't know my... If you're watching on video, I'm pointing to it uh, right behind me. Uh, is all about it's this idea that out of the ashes you arise, or out of the ashes cocktails have risen, because it, they've done it time and time again. Um, be, so, in I believe that we are living through uh, now what is a a sort of third cocktail revolution. And for those of you who don't know, what I'm referring to when I say that is that. America essentially invented the cocktail and that's really nothing to brag about, but because the only thing that we've really ever offered to the culinary world is the cocktail, but the cocktail has seen many a dark days before. So the first cocktail revolution was not any one specific time or year like we're dealing with now, but it was sort of the pre, uh, during and post prohibition era where the cocktail was really starting to pick up momentum, uh, before prohibition. And then during prohibition, actually, um, you know, many of the great bar women and men jumped ship to Europe and places where you could sling drinks and, it actually ended up being in a lot of many ways a blessing in disguise because what happened was when when they had access to uh, you know ingredients and spirits and culture that they had never had access to before. So then, when when prohibition ended, many of them brought those um, you know recipes, ingredients, and uh, creativity back to the states with them, as well as you know, many European bartenders coming back to the States to sling drinks because this was sort of the place, um, you know, we had a brief period of time, which was the roaring twenties where this was the place to drink for sure. And to sling drinks. So that is, you know, certainly the greatest example of cocktails arising out of the ashes of prohibition, which we referred to as like sort of the dark days in American history. So the second cocktail revolution would have been, you know, a little bit softer, not to be taken as seriously, but certainly uh, just as bad in my opinion, which was the sort of disco era of the 70s and 80s and even bleeding into the 90s a little bit where um, you had, you know, America first introducing to the market a bunch of just quite nasty ingredients, a lot of high, high fructose corn syrup, a lot of dyes, a lot of color. A lot of things you don't want in your drink, those of us who, you know, uh, like to sling or drink drinks from, I guess, you know, whatever you want to call it, higher level or as David Wondrich refers to, like craft cocktails and as many others do, you know, things you don't want in your drink. So then, you know, after that, you know, starting in the 90s, but more in the early 2000s is when we have a second cocktail revolution 
which is, you know, obviously the greatest one that we sort of just came out of. And, uh, you know, I don't mean to be dark or anything like that, but, it, but it, it, the second cocktail revolution has come to an end. But the blessing is that we're starting, as, as I say, the third cocktail revolution, which is my thesis is this, this is where the cocktail revolution and the cocktail or even just the essence of the cocktail becomes much more digital. I'm certainly not saying that people are going to drink cocktails over the internet or whatever um, to make just an obvious preface there. But many bartenders and, um, you know, even uh, bars are, are taking their creativity online. And I think that's awesome. So, for example, we've seen a lot more bartenders that are making drinks um, on social media and um, bars that are posting their recipes that you can make at home and things like that. And so that leads me to the reason why this is the third cocktail revolution is because this is the beginning of um, the shift of a much more digital era when it comes to hospitality in general, but especially cocktails because not only do you have access to more information and recipes and, and you know ingredients than you ever have, certainly here in the States, but you also have, um, you know, just this idea that, you know, you're going to have to use digital to stay alive as an institution and perhaps even as a mixologist. And what I'm trying to say is that you, um, you know, I think that as a mixologist is being taken much more seriously as a profession, it is going to be the kind of thing where you have to use social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, whatever it is, to uh, as a sort of proof of concept for your skills uh, for a multitude of different reasons. And one of those reasons is that I believe, you know, post-pandemic, bar owners and hiring managers are really not going to be able to afford to attract anything but the best talent in the industry. Which is to say that, you know, we're, we're already working in an industry where the margins are so slim and it's so difficult to make a profit. And as the model shifts and even just the physical layout of bars changes where it's more spread out, you're going to have to be serving, you know, things that are a little bit more expensive and a little bit more high end. So I actually think that the model of cocktail bars um, is going to completely change. But in some ways, you are going to have um, positive aspects to this because uh, – pardon me. I'm going to take a, a drink here. Because I think after this, the entire model of the cocktail bar is going to be much more prolific, which is to say you're going to see an emergence of cocktails and cocktail bars because – you know, you're going to have to be, as I say, um, serving a more expensive product with more quality ingredients because that's what people have come to expect as they've been making better cocktails at home. That being said, I don't think they're going to be making six, seven ingredient uh, drinks at home. But that's what, that's a long way of saying that I think that the standards are going to have to rise a lot within the industry. And I was chatting with uh, one of my good friends who's an Englishman who knows you know much about cocktails and mentored me in the early days of my career. And he made the case that this is one of the positive aspects of the pandemic is that it's going to weed out the dilettantes, if you will. So as many of you know who try – you know, very hard to do your best and treat this as a profession, it becomes very hard because it's an industry filled with people that don't really take it seriously, even at high end places, unfortunately, and places that are, you know, considered very, you know, or, or maybe are maybe accredited very much for being a cocktail bar. You still have your actors, models, musicians, and people that are not, you know, all in the game. So, um, I think that, those people are going to have to figure something else out. And I'm not saying that, you know, we should weed them out on purpose, you know, because if they treat this seriously and they, they do a great job, then I, I think that there's still room for you in, within hospitality. But the people that have no interest in, you know, 
hyper attention to detail and being extremely careful about every drop of every ingredient that goes into a, a mixing glass or into a shaker are just not going to survive anymore. I just don't think so. The standards are going to be too high. You're, and um, that leads me to another frustration that I've had, which is the sort of incompetence of managers within the industry. Everybody knows that you don't really take a manager seriously if they can't sling drinks themselves. So I think that we're, we're going to be dealing with a much more um, bartender run style of hospitality within the industry um, after this all ends. So, you know, I kind of glazed over this, but I meant to also make the point that this, in, in a way, this is also like a second prohibition for bartenders. And I'm not... Um, at all making like a moral case for why this is or for better or for worse or whatever. But in essence, it's the same thing because bartenders are being told that they can't do their job. And every single time that that has happened throughout history, we have found a way to innovate and become creative and figure out a way to, you know, still do what we love to do. And as I say, this is, um, you know, many people have taken that, online. So I, you know, I do briefly want to go over sort of who I am and how, how this all started as well, because, um, you know, I do think it's relevant that, you know, who the person is, who's teaching you how to make these drinks and, and sort of, um, how you can apply the, the principles that I took to, to get ahead fairly quickly, I would say comparatively to a lot of other people, it's sort of we're told to wait in line um, and apply them to your own career and your own skill set. So um, I started slinging drinks at a corporation that I'm that I really shouldn't say about five years ago, and uh, it's not a you know it's not a certainly not a brag at all. They didn't sling the kind of drinks that we are making here at Alchemics by any means, but. Uh, that's where it all started. And I didn't think at all it was something I was going to delve into as deeply as I have, or certainly not even, you know, at the time, probably didn't even think I was going to make a career out of it. So simultaneously, I went and got certified by the top social media strategists in the world. And this is just your um, standard advertising on Google AdSense and Facebook and advertising and things of that nature. So I started a, a digital agency. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. I just, cause that's not what this is about, but I do think, you know, it's relevant because that's what got me to New York city, which, you know, the people who know me now know that that's how this, you know, that's where I built whatever career that I had um, before this pandemic started. So um, got to New York city and started working with restaurants exclusively because I was fairly familiar with the market. So I would just run their social media for them. Long story short. And as many of you know, I ended up, uh, you know, as many of you know, New York City is very expensive. So I actually ended up bartending to make ends meet and didn't, you know, again, at that time, really didn't know what this world was going to lead to and how, you know, it was going to influence my entire life. But uh, ended up at a joint called Cafe Fiorello sort of just um, kind of wandered in there, I guess, in a way, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know what I was doing in terms of mixing classics and proper technique and things like that. Um, but I was blessed to have two amazing bartenders that um, old school guys that been in the game a long time that really just took me under their wing and taught me everything they know and were very, very cool about teaching me um, their skills, contrary to, you know, sort of what happened later with younger bartenders where it became a little more cutthroat. I think some of the more old school guys don't really have feel like they're competing as much because they, you know, th their, their knowledge and their skill set and being in the game for so long, um, it gives them a distinct advantage, even though I do think it can also become a crutch at one point, but as well as being uh, mentored by an amazing beverage director as well, 
who uh, was an Italian guy who was a flare tender back in Italy. And, you know, I learned a little flair along the way. And as the YouTube comments have accurately alluded to, I'm not good at all. It's, but, you know, I'm working on it. I'm, I'm practicing. So we're having fun here as well. Um, and that's where I really fell in love with classics, I guess. Um, because I didn't know the, uh, I didn't know how rich the, the, you know, the history of cocktails was. And for those of you who know New York City and Cafe Fiorello, it's been there for 45 years. It's right across the street from Lincoln Center um, on the Upper West Side, right near Columbus Circle. So you have like a really, you know, a really awesome like old school crowd. Um, you know, it's a lot of martinis, Manhattans, but I definitely delved into the lore, uh, you know, of uh, the whole cocktail world. So, you know, doing this while I'm tr attempting to build this agency where I'm, you know, working with restaurants and bars and improving their social media. So, found a, uh, you know, rather a gentleman found me on the um, online, on the line. Jesus, pardon me. I'm going to take another sip of my Tom Collins. I didn't think I drank that much, but you know how it goes. Uh, so a gentleman found me online uh, because I was also, you know, posting my own content about mostly on Instagram about cocktails and, um, you know, making recipes and classics and things like that, that uh, many of you know me for now. And uh, we got to talking and eventually you know, I guess the, the story goes that he liked the fact that I had a unique skill set, which was uh, the sort of, you know, digital and mixology combined, even though, as I say, I was not at a high level of bartending at the time. But he appreciated that skill set. So I helped open a little joint, which is right on 33rd Street called Zoni Cantina. And this was really only like three months into me, you know, slinging classic cocktails and really even jumping into this world at all. But, you know, I took it seriously and I really loved it. So not only did I build the, the cocktail program, even though it was very small, um, but I also hired and trained the bartenders and ran all the social media. So that, in essence, highlights, you know, what I'm really doing here, because that was the first time that I that I merge the two skill sets together and this was even before alchemics existed so it wasn't for um wasn't for about a year later that I, we actually started making videos about cocktail tutorials or whatever so after um spending almost a year not even a year at cafe fiorello i, I quickly realized that i did want to do something more advanced and learn more about how this you know you know, because I knew what I didn't know, I suppose. So from there, the uh, the beverage director from uh, a place called the Clock Tower lived in the neighborhood and used to kind of, uh, come in and offered me a job. And this was a totally different world that I certainly was not at all prepared for. And in terms of cocktails, this was kind of the opposite kind of program that I was used to, which is, uh, you know, and a totally different world. It was Madison Avenue. It was right across from 11 Madison Park, which I later went and interviewed at. Didn't get far, but interviewed there. And it was an award-winning cocktail uh, program at the time. And that's where I learned a lot of advanced techniques. We were doing fat washing. We were doing a lot of infusions. Um, and it just became far more advanced, which I loved. And that was great. Um, and then I, you know, as the story goes, the revolving door of this industry, I quickly moved on from there, uh, due to issues that really had nothing to do with the cocktail program or the cocktails themselves. Um, but knew this was something that, you know, I wanted to take really seriously because one of my frustrations was that, you know, you can never, uh, control what other people do, I suppose. So. Now, what you can do is, you know, do your best to build cocktail programs, which largely have to do with people. 
that are willing to take that program seriously. So I went on to become um, to get the first head bartender job, um, which was nothing crazy, but was uh, a local joint called Boca de Baco in Chelsea, an Italian joint. Um, and so built the cocktail program there, and it was largely a bunch of twists on classics because that's sort of what uh, they were used to. The beverage director didn't really want to waver too much from that, but yeah, I did have some uh, creative freedom behind the bar, so we did a lot of interesting things. And within the limitations that I was given, I think you know built a pretty good program. So just to backtrack briefly as well, I was the the youngest bartender to ever work at the Clock Tower, which was also a Michelin star restaurant, um, which also opened me up to the, uh, you know, the sort of creativity and attention to detail that goes into a place like that, which is something that I really love. Then naturally, um, as I say, moved on, became, got my first head bartender job. Wasn't in a, you know, the most amazing cocktail program of all time, but had a great time, served a lot of people, uh, made a lot of guests happy. And then, wanted to do something really advanced. So it wasn't exactly an advanced cocktail program, but then from there got hired at a place called Papillon, which many people know. That is, um, you know, Midtown on the east side in New York City and totally different speed. And that's when I was really introduced to like how hard this whole thing was gonna, was gonna be. I guess because we invented uh, amazing cocktails had, you know, carte blanche to whatever ingredients we wanted. You know, I could order anything. I could make anything. Um, had, you know, a pretty good team of bar backs had a really hard time. Um, had a really hard time with the, the aspect of, uh, you know, managing, people or I suppose the, you know, it's, it's a tough thing. And, and, you know, anybody's ever been a head bartender, even people that just care more than others, I guess, about a cocktail program at a job, know how, know how frustrating that can be. And in essence, I think that's what allowed me to get ahead very quickly is just to simply care uh, more just to have more attention to detail, but, you know, quickly learned uh, the challenges of, as I alluded to before, uh, running a cocktail program, um, when it comes to the people and getting the people to really care as much as you do, because, um, this is not perfectly relevant. Well, yeah, it is, you know, so one of my mentors early on said, no one's going to ever give a fuck about your cocktail program as much as you do. And that's, you know, absolutely true. So the, the challenge is how do you get someone to care about, uh, having the same kind of hyper attention to detail that you do. Um, in a co- so that was the thing that I really struggled with the most. And then as a sort of blessing and a curse, right. As we were going through all that after, you know, building that whole cocktail program, um, this pandemic, we all know sort of hit and right around St. Patty's day, just completely started to decimate this industry. As many of you know, and, and, you know, it just was not pretty. So I think that, you know, if there's anything I've done right, it's that I sort of realized the the implications on the hospitality industry that this had and would have, and it was going to last a lot longer than people thought. So, you know, I, within a week or so actually jumped ship and uh, and it's funny because I'm talking to like some of my bartender friends now that are just now starting to get this and we're filming this like right at the beginning of 2021. So yeah, they're just now realizing like the the deep implications that this has on the industry, especially within New York City, and are you know I, either figuring out other ways or going other places. So I had just realized that this was going to be something that was really bad early on. So I came back to my home state of Colorado, we're in the Denver area, and built this entire studio that uh, I'm sitting in right now. 
And yeah, I did actually build this entire thing myself. It was really, really, you know, fun and I had a great time. And right around the time that this podcast is coming out, there is a video on YouTube that you can watch. Uh, it may already be out, but it could also take a little, a little bit longer about, um, you know, it's an entire, uh, it's an entire video of like basically how I built this entire thing. And it's so awesome to me because, I finally have carte blanche to do whatever I want creatively and I could set it up in any way that I want. So we're doing things now here that are really, really advanced and I'm very excited to bring some of this stuff to you guys because as I say, there was not a lot of, you know, when I started doing this, there was not a lot of good information online and I'm hoping to be that for you, especially as we try to navigate through this entire, um, you know, clusterfuck of a situation we find ourselves within the industry and simultaneously whilst building this bar also actually launched alchemics bar designs which many of you have seen on my instagram but uh you know just to make ends meet while this whole thing happened uh you know i had i had a background in sort of a little bit of design work i wanted to be an architect when i was very young so um Launched that, and we have now designed and built three home bars. So again, you can check all those out in this in the that video too. They also are featured in the you know the Alchemics Bar design video, and you know that's another thing that sort of changed as uh, this entire industry changes. That there was you know homeowners that wanted bars in their house now because you know maybe they're a little bit older they really just didn't think that they were going to be able to go out again for you know at least a long time at best a long time and at worst you know ever so you know designed and built three home bars already one of them's my own so that's what i've been up to i've been setting this all up for the last year and so just as a side note, I'm not pushing this too hard, but if you are interested, you know, you, there's a million ways you can reach out to me. Instagram is the best way, but we are taking um, new clients for Alchemics Bar Designs on the East Coast, West Coast, and Colorado. So uh, it's a turnkey service actually where we did, you know, we partnered with a design, we partnered with a build firm and I personally design everything. And so it's a turnkey service where you get, you know, your bar, whether it's a home bar, commercial bar, designed and built and all, you know, taken care of. So uh, that's just, you know, one aspect of, but um, I do want to talk about briefly because uh, there's so many, but I, I do want to pay tribute to some of the, you know, cocktail bars that really inspired me in the beginning and, and um, that have now gone out of business. And one of them, big one for me is Pegu Club uh, because that was, you know, that was a huge inspiration to me both in that the cocktail program was amazing. Uh, what Audrey Saunders did there was just unprecedented for the time, but also the bar design was something that, did inspire me later to go on to design bars and how this all started. So along the way, uh, became a whiskey expert, which frankly means nothing. I'm just going to be so honest with you. You know, I'm certified by two different companies as a whiskey expert, but the reality is I, I wasn't really a whiskey expert until I started drinking whiskey quite a bit, you know, as uh, sort of, you know, I don't know, as you know, because you're not really going to be an expert until you start tasting. So that's part of the paradox of this entire industry is like nothing really matters on paper. It's all about output. So um, the newest installment of Alchemics that you can find online and that we're also going to be releasing as a podcast is called Whiskey Wednesdays. And um, this has been a lot of fun. We, you know, in essence, just highlight a whiskey every single Wednesday and release it, you know, and have a good time. But also we cover, you, you know, everything there is to know, really. Uh, the website, what um, the mash bill 
But really more importantly, we just taste it and give you the tasting notes that we find, put them back to back with the tasting notes that the, you know, the website might say about the whiskey. But then also, you know, we taste it in a Carnegie glass, we taste it on the rocks and, and then we also put it into a cocktail, whatever cocktail maybe best fits that uh, particular whiskey. So I do think that that's going to be sort of uh, something that you may enjoy if you like whiskey. And so, you know, check that out. Um, I would say that leads me to my my greater point, which, you know, long story long, forgive my rambling. I'm going to take another sip of this uh, grapefruit colon. The greater point that I'm trying to make here is that this is absolutely the time to double down on your knowledge, regardless of um, whether you really just like to sling drinks at home for guests or especially if you're you know in a professional setting and if you really want to take this to the next level as i say if you can be you know a top level person within this industry i think that you're going to get ahead i really think you're going to get ahead if you just care if you study so now is the time to learn to grow to taste things to build a palate um and so that Long story long brings me to the model of what this podcast is going to look like. And we're going to jump right into the first episode. We're just, you know, doing it. So as I say, we make the cocktails. We release an episode now every single day. So there's a recipe that comes out every day. There's the instructional video that comes out on Instagram and YouTube. Um, So whatever your preferred platform is there, you can watch it. We're also releasing some of them on LinkedIn. Um, so if you're a little bit more of like a uh, you know professional, you want to engage with us that way. That's that's great as well. You talk to a lot of ambassadors and beverage directors and merchandisers and things of that nature there. Um, and then bring those cocktails to the podcast. And then talk about them in more depth. So as you know, if you've been around for a little while, I like to give the most accurate history possible for whatever cocktail we're making. And this week we jumped into the family of Collins cocktails, which was really fun. Just as a quick side note too, I mean, if you're watching on video, you can see right behind me, I have the punch book from David Wondrich, which was uh, his second installment um, of, I guess, the, the main two books he's known for. One, The first one was Imbibe, which many of you know, but if you don't know, it's absolutely mandatory reading when it comes to cocktail history. David Wondrich, um, in my opinion, is one of the last great journalists ever um, in any industry. But I'm certainly not an expert really on any other industry. But that is to say that he is one of the last journalists uh, in history that that I know of that really has a sense of, um, I suppose, how would you say, maybe uh, journalistic responsibility. And we wouldn't be where we are in terms of cocktail history without him. So I wanted to bring that up to give him a shout out, not that he needs a shout out from me, but more importantly, because his name is going to be coming up a lot. And much of the information when it comes to the the, the research uh, in you know the cocktail history comes from his books, which are, you know, we certainly do our own research, but a lot of it has to do with digging into some of his books. So um, yeah, Really what I do best, I believe, is more like a curator of these cocktails and ideas. Um, And if I could just rant again, and if you'll have me, one of the other things that really just drives me up the wall insane about all these guys who are, um, you know, making drinks online or whatever, I've not seen one that has any sense of um, journalistic responsibility, as I say, as, as David you know, Wondrich does have. And so if I can be a voice of reason within this cesspool of people making 
cocktail tutorials without any sort of journalistic diligence, I would absolutely love to do that. And we have an email list as well. If you'd like, as I say, we highlight a cocktail every single day. So every week there's a different category of cocktails. And again, this week is Collins cocktails. And we're about to dive right into that history in this first episode. But if you'd like to have it in hard copy and that's easier for you to remember, what I like to do is to write down recipes. So we'll send you uh, you know, an email. It's very short, just uh, the recipes of the week within that category. I know, for example, next week we're doing chartreuse cocktails. So it really gives you a chance to see, you know, cocktail recipes within a certain category. And of course, like uh, many of them cross over to other ca- ca- categories, pardon me, like uh, gin and chartreuse is a big one. Um, so, but it really just helps you double down and memorize these recipes. And then I always recommend just writing them down as well, but you'll have that email with the recipe, with the most accurate history possible. And, you know, also the, the tools used to make them and study them, whether that be books or, um, uh, equipment or what have you. So we'll go ahead and just jump right into the cocktails of the week, which again, are the Collins cocktails. And if you're watching on video are right behind me and we opened up the week with the John Collins, which contrary to popular belief came before the Tom Collins. And every single one of these Collins has a different base spirit. And granted, some of the lore is murkier than others, but they all have their own essence, if you will. So, I want to start out with the John Collins and we made that recipe and actually all the recipes with the exact same formula. So you have two ounces of your base spirit. And as I um, mentioned before, Collins is simply a sour with the addition of club soda. So by definition, you can use any uh, base spirit that you prefer. Now, when it comes to the exact categorization and all the names, that's where the, the the lore gets a little murkier. So two ounces of your base spirit, three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup, and l- one ounce of lemon juice for every single recipe. Um, and I want to just uh, kick it off really quickly with just reading a passage from uh, David Wondrich's Imbibe. And... This is uh, on page 94, if you're interested, right below the Collins twins, John and Tom section. And quote, I have delved into the origins and early history of this Prince of Long Drinks in some detail and punch. But here's the telegraphic version. New York, Stephen Price, theatrical manager, gin punch drinker, club soda, water in his please, moves to London manages the Garrick Club, actors, royals, other celebrities. His punch catches on. John Collins, head waiter, Limmer's Hotel, makes a version. His version makes him famous. His clientele runs to admirals and baronets, dukes and generals. They spread the drink around the world. So like many cocktails, the origins start in the United States, actually, and they really start with some of the origins of, you know, the cocktail in general, as he highlights in, in uh, Punch. Um, the, the cocktail is derived from a punch. So the only difference is John Collins uh, switched out the base spirit, which was um, not typically even gin, I believe, or it was... Um, you know, a variety of different other things, namely whiskey, from my understanding, was um, so switches it out and makes an individual version um, because punches are typically designed to be, you know, served in multiple different servings. So switches it out for the uh, the base spirit for Geneviève, which uh, is not gin. But like gin is a juniper infused spirit, except for it is a grain based spirit. So many people have likened Geneva to an unaged scotch. 
And, you know, trying the John Collins, it's, it's pretty good. It's got, you know, a lot of depth to the flavor. You can definitely get like that grainy flavor profile. And I got to say, I did enjoy it, but um, just to jump in so that we can highlight really quickly the difference between gin and Jennifer, I'm pulling a, a legal definition straight out of Dave Broom's Gin How to Drink It book, which um, I was pleasantly surprised with the book as a whole because I'm, I'm typically like wary of titles like this, but it, it is quite good. It's sort of textbook format, so I do recommend picking it up. Uh, it goes into a lot of detail. So legal definition of Geneviève, made with ethanol alcohol slash grain spirit slash distillate flavored with juniper, which needn't be the predominant flavor. So like gin, gin you are going to have that juniper flavor, but it doesn't need to be the you know predominant uh, flavor profile as does with gin. So... The question, the big question is, the, you know, how did Tom Collins become the, uh, the more predominant uh, Collins in the Collins family and why? So, you know, throughout multiple different sections in um, Imbibe and Punch, and, uh, you know, many articles that I've read from David Wondrich as well, there's like these sort of um, – I wouldn't call them knocks on them, but they're, they're sort of like fair criticisms that Jerry Thomas, uh, as many of you know, known as the professor – who invented? Who you know? To be fair, invented a lot of cocktails, but also just kind of popular. Popular. Jeez, pardon me. That's the gin talking. Popularized many cocktails. So I'll drink some more. So definitely accurately points out that Jerry Thomas was kind of uh, known in many ways for, frankly, just ripping cocktails. I mean. Um, he certainly invented his own and uh, he certainly just, you know, put his own twist on cocktails as well. But um, as is highlighted by the Collins, this is something that he really didn't uh, make any effort to like pay credit to the actual origins of the cocktail. So I'm going to go back to imbibe and read um, – Another uh, passage from Imbibe, and this is just on the next page. He goes, "That happened to the John Collins. Uh, what happened to the John Collins in 1970s when it turns up in the new edition of Jerry Thomas's book in 1976? It's somehow turned into a Tom Collins. What gives?" And then he goes. In 1874, you see an annoying bit of tomfoolery began crisscrossing the country. It couldn't be simpler. Turn to the guy standing next to you at the bar and say that you heard Tom Collins was going around bad-mouthing him and that you just saw said Mr. Collins in a bar around the corner, down the street, across town, wherever. Exit guy steaming. At the next place, when he asked for Mr. Collins, those who were in on the gag would repeat the procedure. It sounds moronic, but judging from newspapers accounts of the hijinks that ensued, only a few of them fatal. It worked. At any rate, for people who had never heard of Limmers or Old John, Tom Collins must have been Excuse me. Tom Collins must have made more sense as a drink name. So as many of you know, there's this there's this joke floating around the ether in the 1800s, you know, mid to late 1800s that was, you know, the old Tom Collins joke where you'd make up a lie. And then it sort of became like a, a certainly perpetuated bar, by bartenders where they would just send people on a wild goose chase and oftentimes make them buy a cocktail before they would tell them where Tom Collins had gone next. So Jerry Thomas being the marketing genius that he is, when he published the second edition of his book in 1976, um, which was, I believe, the 
you know, mostly the same book, but had like a long title, like how to mix fancy drinks and then list them all. But um, essentially was the, you know, standard bartender's guy that's sitting right behind me now. Uh, so being the genius that he was, um, switched out the Geneviève in the Collins cocktail for old Tom gin and the marketing and lore literally just took care of everything else. I mean, this is what really sprung this cocktail into popularity. And from there it was the hottest thing around. Everybody wanted to drink it. Um, so, um, the, so obviously, you know, we're, that uh, brings us straight into the second cocktail, which is the Tom Collins. And this is obviously made with old Tom gin. Um, and this would have been pre prohibition, right? So, um, old Tom gin really largely made a name for self post prohibition because, uh, it was, that was the time when everybody was making gin and it was all horrible. So they would add other things like licorice to, um, not only sweeten it, but mask the horrible taste of the gin, but. So the point is, is that the old Tom that Jerry Thomas used in this cocktail was probably quite different than the old Tom gin um, that we know today. But old Tom gin now is, is frankly, it's, it's pretty great spirit. So they actually distill it with licorice. So it's not something that's just added as a sweetener. It's part of the distillation process. We used Heyman's old Tom gin in this cocktail. And this was, this was really good. Um, it's a lot more of like an easy drinker. I would say it's a little bit more light and refreshing than the John Collins. The John Collins, as I say, many have likened uh, Geneva to like an unaged Scotch, has much more of like a uh, much more grainy and has a lot more depth to the cocktail. Whereas the Tom Collins, especially with this Heyman's Old Tom, which I've been a fan for of uh, Heyman's entire line of gin products for quite a while. Is uh, it was much more of an easy drinker. It was kind of uh, you know, I will say this, you know, even though the the history is a little murky as it always is, I I, I did enjoy this more than the John Collins. I I could certainly you know, I could certainly drink it as an aperitif. Uh, it was just light, refreshing, nice. Had a slight bit of sweetness. Obviously, you have the bubbles and the lemon juice. With the gin definitely, you know, opened up the appetite. So that's what uh, that's what it is. Um, so certainly the most common and definitely what you should try. So um, now third up on the list was it was kind of interesting. Was a uh, a cocktail called the uh, Colonel Collins, and um, this is uh, the variation of the Collins made with bourbon. Uh, and so, as many of you know, bourbon is one of my favorite spirits. So this is one that I happen to enjoy the most. But the interesting thing about this is that Jerry Thomas actually lists whiskey, although he doesn't categorize what uh, particular kind of whiskey, as an acceptable variation uh, of the Collins as opposed to Old Tom Gin. And uh, he also lists brandy. As another acceptable variation, which, you know, as I say, is you can add whatever base spirit you want. That's just the reality. So, but the Curl of Collins, interesting history though. Um, legend has it that uh, the name comes from Colonel John Bernard, who uh, was a Civil War colonel and was said to um, naturally, just given the essence of this cocktail, enjoy this with America's native spirit. And Colonel Collins was uh, also an academic scientist, engineer, mathematician, history author, and uh, Union Army veteran. And this would have been more like the late, late 1800s. So this was, uh, you know, to the best of our ability in chronological order. And so, as I say, Jerry Thomas also lists brandy as an acceptable variation uh, in his How to Mix Drinks. So, 
Um, the brandy variation of the Collins got picked up by Pierre Ferrand, which we used uh, in the recipe in the video. So, uh, although again, he didn't specify the exact spirit or you know any brands or anything like that, but. Um, Pierre Ferrand, I guess, in the early 1900s, picked this up since this was the hottest cocktail around. Uh, probably right, right before Prohibition started, and for you know, to whatever extent, you know, people were actually drinking brandy in the states. You know, mostly high society uh, used the Pierre Collins as a marketing campaign for their spirit, naturally. And uh, yeah, branding technique. So it is good. It is good. This is much more, although it is kind of weird to me, you know, I don't know. This is probably the last one, frankly, that I would actually order in a bar. And it's not bad because, you know, it's a well-balanced drink with um, soda. You know, it's a simple cocktail, but it's kind of a contradiction in a sense because, you know, when you think brandy, you think like, you know, dark, rich flavors maybe after dinner, you know, something that's going to be a little more satisfying. And when you add, you know, to the stomach, I guess I should say, and when you add, um, you know, lemon juice to it, I mean, sure, like you can have a brandy sour, but I don't know, something about it didn't sit right with me. I don't have, you know, I don't have anything against it. Again, it was a well-balanced cocktail, but not my preferred method of uh, drinking a Collins, not my preferred base spirit, but um Next up, the uh, the fifth one was the Pedro Collins, and this is another interesting one because the uh, the Pedro Collins is the white rum variation uh, of the Collins cocktail, and like um, like many rum cocktails, this was said to have been invented by Ernest Hemingway whilst uh, Prohibition was in full swing in the United States, and you know he was known to jump ship to have a sip even though um I'm, i certainly didn't think he had any problem drinking in the states it's just that he uh you know he enjoyed good spirits so he he went to cuba and asked an uh unknown bartender whose first name was pedro but that's all we know to switch out the old tom gin and the popular tom collins cocktail for white rum Thus inventing this twist on the popular classic and named it after Pedro and brought it back to the States. And uh, naturally his friends and uh, colleagues started drinking it in this way once Prohibition had ended. Um, Pepito Collins is number six. And this is the tequila variation. And this would have been much, much later, but, uh, you know, mid 1900s, a, uh, pianist prodigy named Pepito Ariola, who was also a sort of a linguist prodigy from a young age, spoke like eight different languages. Um, was actually born in Spain, um, but was eventually invited to be the conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra whilst tequila was really first hitting the market in the States. And um, bartender invented this var variation in Boston for him and named it the Pepito Collins. This one was one of my favorites, I gotta say. Um, I'm not so sure, although there's been many variations of, you know, like a highball with white rum, I suppose. I'm not, I'm not, this is probably one of the, the uh, this is like the dark horse of all these, because I, I didn't think I was gonna like it as much as I did, particularly because it's made with lemon juice and not lime juice, which, you know, obviously as a general rule, a thumb pairs with silver tequila better. But uh, this is actually the one that really stimulated my appetite as soon as I tried it. And uh, we immediately went and had Mexican food right after that. So, you know, I paired it with Mexican food, had some tacos. Um, and this, you know, is an obvious pair for Mexican food. But it was really, really good. Got to say, um, I certainly think that you may – 
make the drink better if you were to switch out the lemon for lime in this particular case. However, if you're going to do that, you might as well switch out the simple syrup for agave and then you're down a whole nother rabbit hole. So um, Pepito Collins, certainly worth trying. And um, last up, the Joe Collins. And this is the uh, vodka variation. The story goes in the early 2000s, a New York bartender invented this twist and named it after Joe the bartender from Grey's Anatomy uh, for a guest who loved that show. And I'm now recalling that I said that the Pierre Collins was probably the last variation I would order at a bar. And I take that back because this is certainly the last one I would order at a bar because there's nothing really to it. Um Obviously, vodka is a tough spirit to work with for bartenders because of the lack of flavor profile. So there's not a lot of depth to this cocktail. It's kind of just like some, you know, some well-balanced club soda, if you will. So it doesn't really do a lot for me. And also, you know, if you – the kind of people in my experience that have ordered a cocktail like this, like a vodka highball, are probably – pardon me – just going to get a uh, vodka soda and avoid the calories – um and at that point there's there's no flavor anyway so i don't quite see the point i'm not hating on it but it's just not exactly for me so that in essence is uh, the long and rich history of the collins family to uh you know whatever extent we could bring value i hope you got uh, a lot out of that and um as always Click the link in the description or the show notes to uh, sign up for the email list so that you can have the hard copy of these recipes and a brief history. And again, I just like to write them down. And uh, thanks very much for watching. As always, I'm Tommy Paul, and that wraps up the first episode of the Alchemics Podcast. Cheers. <laughs>